I want to begin a little differently this morning than I usually do. I want to do a little word association with you, okay? So, so when I say dog, what comes to your mind? Cat, okay. When I say hot, you think? Good. But when I say husband, you say? Okay. Well, when... Um, when I say um, bacon, eggs, well, what comes to your mind when I say holiness, personal holiness? You know, the kind of things that come to most people's mind are, are words like um, boring, impossible, dull, dreary, monotonous, uh, no fun, no jokes, no sex, getting up at 4 a.m., I mean, no wonder people are not attracted to holiness. But did you know that when the Scripture uses the word holiness, it has a completely different idea in mind? Let me ask you another question. What do these four or three things have in common? Look on the screen. A doll without a head, secondly. A computer without a screen, Car without wheels. What do they have in common? They're broken, don't work, incomplete. Okay, can't get anywhere with them. They're they're not whole, are they? They're not whole. Now, now that's kind of the idea behind the scripture using the word holiness. Did you know the word holiness comes from a root word that means wholeness. To, to be holy is to be whole, complete, and totally alive. The way God intended us to live. So, I mean, how do we live a complete, whole, totally live life? Well, that's the very subject Paul wants to talk about in the fourth chapter of First Thessalonians. If you'd turn there with me, First Thessalonians 1, and follow along as I read. He says, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave through the Lord Jesus. Now, in the first three chapters of this book, Paul has shared an encouraging personal message with us. But now he transitions from a message that's uh, personal to one that is practical. It's practical instruction. It's instruction on how to live life. I mean, notice he encourages us to abound more and more. In other words, this church he's writing is doing well, but Paul wants them to go beyond doing well. He wants them to live a life fully and completely engaged with God. One that's fully alive. In fact, I love the way one first century Christ follower put it. He said, the glory of God is a man who is fully alive, living the way God intended us to live life. 
Now, that's exactly what Paul has in mind when he says abound more and more. In other words, don't settle for mediocrity in your walk with God. Don't allow the difficulties of life to sideline you. Keep pressing and persisting in engaging your heart with God. So how do we do that? How do we live lives fully alive? Well, Paul begins to tell us in verse 3, look at what he says. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Now, now that word sanctification, that's a big word, but it, it has a fascinating meaning. It has to do with putting something aside or apart. It's kind of like I mean, chewing a piece of gum, really, if you think about it. You know, there there is really nothing as refreshing as chewing a piece of gum, is it? Isn't it? I mean, it, it freshens the breath. Mm. It can clean your teeth. I mean, if you have it during the middle of the day, that little sweet flavor gives you kind of a pick-me-up. Anybody like a piece? You, you want one? Here, you take that one. It's got plenty of juice still left in it. No. You know, by, by putting this piece of gum in my mouth, you know what I did? I sanctified it. I set it apart, didn't I? Here, gra- grab that piece. I feel bad I, I played with you there. Okay, I set it apart by putting it in my mouth. Now, that's what the word sanctify means. It means to set apart. But when you see that word in Scripture, I mean, you've got to ask yourself, set apart for what? Did you know that word sanctify also comes from a similar root that means whole or wholeness? In other words, by using that word, Paul's saying, if you want to live a full life, a complete life, one that's fully alive, experiencing all that God has for you, then here's what you need to do. And he tells us we've got to walk in purity. I mean, that's exactly what he has in mind when he says abstain from sexual immorality. Yeah, I love the way the Bible doesn't stutter on controversial subjects like this. I mean, it's rather clear and plain, that phrase sexual immorality. You know, it's it's represented by one word in the Greek text, the original um, text the New Testament was written in. And that, that one word is the word pornea, where we get our English word pornography, but, but this word means a whole lot more than don't look at pornography. This word has to do with all kinds of sexual immorality. All kinds. In other words, Paul is saying you want to experience a full life, the life the way God intended it to be lived, that then you've got to say no to premarital sex. You've got to say no to making out in the backseat of a car with somebody you hope you'll marry one day. I mean, you've got to say no to X-rated websites and lustful fantasies about someone in the office or about books. You've got to say no to books that set up expectations that can't possibly be met by anyone. Did what I just say sound obsessive to you? 
over the bo- overboard, kind of over the top. I mean, to our culture, what I just said was absurd. I mean, two people love each other, and, and, and they're careful, and they use protection. I mean, what does it hurt? But I want you to notice in the text, Paul doesn't say, be careful. He says, abstain. I mean, why such harsh command? I mean, is God approved? I mean, does He want to cut out all fun in life? I mean, we're a sophisticated group of people in the 21st century. We can handle it, can't we? I think Paul's concern is a whole lot more fundamental than that. He, he is saying abstain because it'll destroy the wholeness you were created to experience with God. It'll devastate the tenderness of this new heart God gave you at new birth. And not only that, it, it's contrary to the way you were designed to experience life. A full life that has a healthy sense of self-respect and well-being in it. You know, 25 years of pastoral counseling, my office has been filled with people who think, who disagree with what Paul says here. They, they don't believe him. They think they're the uh, um, exception to the rule. And sadly, like a tsunami, the pain and heartache and devastation ends up eventually sweeping over their life and the lives of those who are caught in the vortex of their destructive behavior as well. So the question I have is, how do you live a life of personal purity in a morally bankrupt culture? Well, Paul's going to give us three guidelines. The first one's found in verse 4. Notice it says that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. Paul says if you want to stay personally pure in a morally bankrupt culture, then you've got to first of all know your own weaknesses. I mean, that's what he means by possess your own vessel. Know, know your bodies. I mean, know where your weakness lies, what weakens self-control, what strengthens it. I mean, possessing your own bodies also means admitting to temptations you can't handle, avoiding those enticing situations. I mean, the conversations with co-workers that just woo you and lure you in little by little are the touch that is more than just a touch. And it's so innocent at first. Paul said, you've got to avoid those things. I mean, some books, uh, internet sites, videos, well, they stir up lustful passions and some situations provide opportunity to think about compromise. Paul's begging, don't go there. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know a whole lot about turkey hunting. But I did talk to a man who did at a family life conference. In fact, uh, he told me, he said, uh, well, I own a plantation in Georgia and I just love turkey hunting. That's the way he said it. I could listen to him talk all day. And as he talked, I learned a whole lot about turkey hunting. Do you know when you go turkey hunting, you've got to wear camouflage. You've got to blend into the surroundings. The turkey can't know you're there. And not only that, you've got to find a place where you can hide thoroughly. 
And once you get nestled down where you're going to hide, you do need to have a clear shot out in front of you when the turkey walks up. And you've got to stay perfectly still. You can hardly even breathe. And then you take something like this and you lure those turkeys in close. And if you're lucky, a big old gobbler starts poking around, wanting to know what's going on. And the more he hears, the more excited he gets. I mean, he's thinking, there's a hen out there somewhere. And, and, and he's kind of puffing up his chest. And he kind of puts his wings out a little bit. And you want to lure him in closer and closer, within range. Did you know you can't shoot a turkey in the chest? You can't kill him by shooting him in the chest. The shot just bounces off. There's too many feathers there. You've got to shoot a turkey in that little pea-sized head he's got. Now, that's one of the reasons turkey hunting is so difficult. I mean, you've got to be a great shot. So you want to lure him in closer and closer and closer. And then, bang, you take the shot and you got him. Now, now you know, the funny thing about turkey hunting is none of this is real. Just a wood box with a little chalk on it. It's not real, it's fake. I mean, it's an imitation. What do you think the IQ of a turkey is, too? Now, I I hate to compare us to turkeys, but it's late at night, and guys, you're looking at that Internet site you have no business looking at. Or or, or ladies, there's a guy in the office that, I mean, when he speaks to you, I mean, he asks you questions about yourself. He makes you... You feel like what you say matters. Or, or there's your friends reading that book, Fifty Shades of Grey. And, I mean, you don't want to feel left out. Or there's a gal in the office that brings coffee around every day. And she comes in and she flirts with you. And, I, I mean, you, you, you feel alive. Now, what you're encountering is not real. It's an imitation. It's fake. It smells like life. I mean, it tastes like life. It it even looks like life. But it's not life. And if you go there, you'll get your head blown off. That's what Paul's saying. Now, listen, no one stays sexually pure by accident. In our culture, abstaining from sexual immorality means aggressively building protective walls against lust before you have an opportunity to step over the line and get involved. In our culture, sexual gratification is seen, satisfying it is seen like satisfying hunger with food or satisfying thirst with water. And it begins so innocent at first. I mean, it... 
it doesn't seem like it matters. And then it becomes more and more enticing and it lures you in closer and closer. And suddenly it's not really something you get to do. You're wooed to do it. And it makes you feel so much more alive. Before you know it, you've got a full-blown addiction going on. You're trapped and it becomes a powerful taskmaster in your life. And that's because sexual temptation is so uh, enlivening. It's so stimulating. It feels like life. But if Paul were here today, he'd say, no, but you need to know it brings about death. It's a death to the wholeness God created you to experience with Him. It's a death to your relationship with Him. You know, I've been waiting my entire life to be mature enough that tem- those temptations no longer concern me. But that day never arrives. I mean, I've discovered that we have an enemy out there that will take a good thing and make it into a bad thing in order to bring about a destructive thing in our life that will keep us from living lives fully alive. And I I fear in a, a room this size, some of you are already listening to the call. I mean, whether it's pornography, internet sites, illicit relationship, fantasy thinking. You, you're thinking about crossing the line and, and giving in. And if you do, I want you to know you'll be trapped. And God would say, don't go there. Because I didn't create life to be lived like that. I created it differently. I know what you see out there looks like life, it smells like life, it tastes like life, but it's a cheap imitation and it will bring about death. And your heavenly Father has so much more in store for you than that. So to stay sexually pure, I mean, you you got to first of all know your own weaknesses. Secondly, you got to cultivate the right kind of relationship. And that begins with a relationship with God. I mean, that's what Paul implies in verse 5 when he says, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That word know is in the perfect Greek tense, which means having a passionate relationship with God needs to have a continued and abiding impact on your life. In other words, one of the keys to resisting sexual temptation is getting to know the God who has been pursuing you since before the beginning of time. You know, perhaps the reason bad passions are so strong in us is because good passions are so weak. I mean, the problem may not be too much desire, but too little. I mean, the core problem in most of us is, is, not, is we're, not that we're passionate enough about good things, but... I mean, we're not too passionate about bad things, but we instead need to be passionate enough about good things. The problem is we are not wooed by the right things. And so that begins by establishing boundaries. I mean, that makes sense. But Paul says, no, that, that, that's just the beginning. Self-discipline will only take you so far. You've got to develop an intimate engagement 
with the one who loves wooing you in life-giving directions. You know what I've discovered in my life? That that one God, He's always faithful. Even when I end up being faithless. That's His engagement with my life. Paul would say you've got to encourage that, the, uh, that relationship with God. But secondly, he would say don't stop there. You've got to encourage uh, wholesome pursuits with others. With, with people who will be honest with you. Who, who will help you see where life is found. That you trust. That won't condemn you for the things that you're wrestling with. And that will listen and be a friend. So so why is Paul so passionate about all this? Well, it's because he knows that sexual temptation not only affects you, it affects other people. It impacts them. And look at verse 6. He says that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this manner because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified. I mean, do you see the strong language Paul uses to describe God? He calls Him the avenger. That that word means the one who extracts justice, who disciplines for growth. I mean, why does Paul use language like that? He knows that our behavior not only impacts us, but it also will impact others. I mean, a child molester doesn't become a child molester in a vacuum. In 95% of the cases, they were molested as kids. And young dads, you're you're developing habits in your home and that will impact a generation, the next generation. And you don't think your kids notice. But I want you to know that kids have never been good at obeying parents, but they've never ceased to imitate them. Maybe you find yourself as a single person, maybe a single parent. And life is hard, and it feels so lonely, and you're thinking about giving in. But I've learned in my relationship with God is that He will always meet you wherever you are, with whatever you have done. And He will plot a path back to God if you'll let Him. Because that's where you were meant to experience life. See, Paul knows that when you sow a thought, well, it doesn't stay there. It reaps a habit. And when you sow that habit, it reaps a character. And you sow that character, it reaps a lifestyle. You sow that lifestyle over time, it reaps a destiny that will impact others around you. That's why he's so passionate. So how do you stay personally pure in a morally bankrupt culture? Paul says, first of all, you've got to know your weaknesses. Second, he tells us that we have to cultivate the right kind of relationships. But notice, third, he says, you've got to remember your calling. Look at verse 7. He says, for God did not call us to uncleanliness, but holiness. There's our word again. Remember, it means wholeness. He called us to wholeness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has also given us His Holy Spirit. I mean, really, Paul pulls no punches here, does he? I mean, he's calling us to a, a higher standard, a more noble standard, but he also wants us to know that to reject what he says here is the same as rejecting God. I mean, said with other words, it's calling God a liar. 
In other words, if, if God says it's wrong and you say it's okay, who's right? If you're by your behavior, you're saying, I mean, if you think you're right, then by your behavior, you're calling God a liar. I mean, that's what Paul's getting at here. But, but Paul also knows that personal purity is only one part of the big picture of wholeness. So what are the other parts? Well, he paints the rest of the picture beginning in verse 9. He says, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And, and indeed, you, you do so toward all brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, that you increase more, still more. Have you ever noticed how animals seem to do instinctively whatever it takes to stay alive. I mean, you don't, uh, fish don't have to go, you know, to a class to learn to swim. I mean, even though they swim in schools. I mean, birds flap their wings. Why? Because it's in their nature to fly. I mean, because a trout has a trout's nature, he naturally just begins swimming upstream. Now, when Paul says, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, he's talking about what's in your nature. And because we have Christ's nature in us, because we are Christ's followers, he has given us a new heart. We have been given his nature. It should be natural for us to love. That's what he's saying. Now, the word love used here is, is not a word for physical love. It's not a, a word for family love or, or brotherly love. This is an entirely different kind of word for love that Paul uses here. Uh, I mean, this kind of love that Paul talks about is not motivated by appearance or uh, emotional attraction or sentimentality. In fact, it could be said that this love bursts forth in spite of Appearance, emotion, and sentiment. I mean, this is the kind of love that God has for us. He loves us in spite of how we act, in spite of how we respond to Him, doesn't He? And so Paul says, if you want to live lives fully alive, then walk in this kind of love with one another. Express to one another the kind of love that God has expressed toward you and you'll find life. But notice Paul says, but we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. So what causes this kind of love to increase? Well, it's when you place yourself in circumstances where you're forced to love. Did you know that love is like the circulatory system of the body of Christ? I mean, physically speaking... We don't exercise our muscles. Uh, our circulatory system is impaired to some degree. And then things start building up on the sides of our arteries. The blood doesn't get through the nourishment and oxygen doesn't get to the heart and we can have a heart attack. Now, spiritually speaking, when we don't love well, our, our spiritual lives are impaired. And selfishness starts building up 
in our arteries. And the new heart God has given us at rebirth, it doesn't get the nutrition that it needs And our passion for God ends up waning and maybe even dying. So what Paul's saying is if you want to experience a whole life, I mean one that's really fully alive, then you've got to find avenues where you can engage to love and selfless service to others. That's where life will be found. So how do you live a life that's fully alive? He encourages us to walk in purity, to walk in love. But he concludes by telling us you've got to also walk in integrity. Look at verse 11. That you also inspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands. As we command you that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. Now, Paul concludes with three rather odd commands. He directs this church to lead a quiet life, to mind their own business, to work with their hands. Why would Paul command this church to do such a thing? Well, if you look over in 2 Corinthians, I mean 2 Thessalonians, the second letter he wrote this church, you'll find some insight. In 2 Thessalonians 3.11, he says this, But we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through the Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. See, Paul's concerned that this church is not being effective in how they love. In fact, he wants them to love well, but the problem is some of them are living off the benefit of others in the community. And as a result, their reputation has been tarnished. It's not favorable in the eyes of their fellow Macedonians. I mean, can you see what Paul's saying? He's not promoting a fierce spirit of independence, and he's certainly not saying you need to be completely self-sufficient. What he's doing here is he's advocating personal responsibility. He's asking us to walk in personal integrity so that our reputation would not be compromised. And that's even part of the wholeness that we get to have in relationship with God. You see, living pure lives of selfless service with personal integrity causes everyone to pay attention. It becomes like this irresistible influence that gives the world a picture of what God's like. And they are wondering most of their lives if there is a God and what He's like. You know, in World War II, one of the most tragic situations I was told is as the war came to a close, the the number of orphans that were left to fend for themselves on the streets of London. One day a soldier was trying to make his way back to the barracks in his jeep. And as he went down the street, he noticed this little boy with his nose pressed against the the window of a bakery that had just opened up. 
Now, inside, the baker was pulling donuts out of the oven. He was frosting them and then putting them in the window. And he could just see that little boy with his nose pressed up and, and you know, the steam coming from his mouth on the bakery window. And his heart went out to him. So he pulled his Jeep aside. He came across the street, went in the bakery. He bought a dozen donuts. He came out and stood next to that lad in that foggy, cold London morning. And he said, hey, these are for you. And he gave him the bag of a dozen donuts. As he turned to walk back to his Jeep, he felt a tug on the back of his coat. And he turned and he heard that lad say, Mr., Are you God? You you see, you and I are never more alive and like God than when we engage in selfless service to others. Father, would you remind us of what Paul is teaching here? That it's not just being sexually pure, it's being engaged with you in such a way that We reflect your heart, your heart of selfless service to others. Help us be those kind of men and women here at Horizon. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if if you came prepared to give, offering boxes are out there in the hall. And if this is your first time here, we'd love to put a name with a face. Drop by the hearth room. Third door on the left as you leave. And we'll see you back tomorrow. Enjoy this great day.